Before I turn to God's word, just a couple of things. Um, first of all, um, I've just come from Helen um, McMullen's home. She is so grateful for your prayers and for your love and for your support. Thank you all so much for the love that you've shown. And last, in the last couple of days, I was in with Julie Thompson, and she is also really grateful to you. And it's great to see Aaron here with us tonight. Aaron, we love you, and we're praying for you and for your brother. Let's welcome Aaron, shall we, with us tonight. Um, just one correction, Pastor Pip, not that I do that very often, but it's Tuesday the 30th of October, not Thursday the 30th of October for Culture Night. And you all spotted it, didn't you? No, you didn't. No, you didn't. And one other very quick announcement. There's a, there's a, a, a coach trip to Dundraud or Dundrum. See, you all know, all right? You got to pay for it. If you're booked on it, can you please make sure that you get Julie the money as quickly as you can? And if you're not booked on it, it's only for women, fellas. You're not allowed to go. Yeah, I think we should boo that, but never mind. We'll have to organize ourselves to do something else. Maybe, I, mm, I don't want to think about it. Um, <laughs> but if you, if you want to go, then you need to make sure that you give Julie your name. And if you've already booked on it, can you please pay for it? Because she's got to pay for it this week. That would be really great. Um, I made a bit of a mistake this morning. And I want to apologize to Pastor uh, Davy for this. I told a couple of people during the week that I was preaching tonight. And then this morning I announced that I was preaching. And on the rota, it was Davy that was due to preach. So Davy has graciously agreed, partly because of jet lag, and partly because he's just a gracious man, that he's going to move tonight's subject to, the, to a couple of weeks away and I was going to preach tonight because we didn't want to create more confusion. So, Davy, I want to say thank you. Let's give Davy a warm round of applause. <laughs> so what I've done is um, I want to talk to you this evening about what I was going to talk to you about in a couple of weeks in this big question series. And it's a, a question that when I ask it of you, some of you will think, oh, I know the answer to that. But it's actually a fundamentally important question. And it's one that we should ask ourselves regularly, those of us that are already followers of Jesus. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this is the most important question that you will ever ask yourself. This is one of those messages that I hope in years to come, you will be able to point people back to on our Facebook page when they say to you, what is a Christian? When you try to introduce people to Jesus Christ, I hope you can say to them, well, actually, go listen to this, because it might help you. Because that's what I want to ask you about this evening. I want to answer the question, or at least try to answer the question, what is a Christian? And the second question is, are you one? And I don't mean by that, are you churched? I don't mean by that, are you baptized? Because if you look up a, di a dictionary definition of the word Christian, it will give you two different definitions. The first definition is relating to or professing Christian faith and its teachings. The second definition is a person who has received Christian baptism or is a believer in Christianity. Now, I was christened as a baby in Abbott's Cross Presbyterian Church. It didn't make me 
a Christian. That's a decision that no one else can make according to the Bible except you. No one can make it for you. Are you a Christian because you're born in a so-called Christian nation? I want to suggest to you that actually there's no such thing as a Christian nation. Nobody. The United States of America, the United Kingdom, none of us are Christian nations. We're not governed by God's laws. We might introduce some of them that we like, but we often ignore the ones that we don't like. So because you were born in a Christian nation, does that make you a Christian? No, it doesn't. Because you are an Anglican, or here in Northern Ireland, because you're part of the Church of Ireland, does that make you a Christian? No, it doesn't. Because you are a Protestant, does that make you a Christian? No, it doesn't. Because you're a Catholic, does that make you a Christian, a Roman Catholic? The answer is no, it doesn't. None of those things make us Christians. Over the last three weeks, I have each evening, as we've explored big questions, gone through some of the isms of our culture and said, what do they say about the question that we're asking? We've looked at it through the lens of materialism, through the lens of hedonism, capitalism, Marxism, and nihilism. So let me give you a little bit of a flavor, not very much because I can't go into too much detail, of what each of those things would say about being a Christian. These are broad brush statements. What does materialism say about being a Christian? Well, broadly, if you can't benefit from it, what's the point? What about hedonism? The idea that your whole purpose on earth is to be happy. Nothing else matters. Well, if it doesn't make you happy, what's the point? And contrary to much teaching from pulpits today, Christianity doesn't always make you better off. <laughs> and it certainly doesn't always make you gleefully happy. What about capitalism? Well, it would say if Christianity doesn't make the world richer, what's the point? Marxism? Well, Karl Marx and his uh, friend Frederick Engels described religion, not just Christianity, but religion as a drug that kept classes down and made sure that the struggle between the rich and the poor was always won by the rich. So according to Marx's ideology, if you're a Christian, you're a druggie. You're being duped and controlled by a spiritual opiate that's making sure that you never wake up. And what about nihilism? Friedrich Nietzsche, and as my son reminded me uh, today over lunch, his sister were very influential in shaping that and shaping the arguments that flowed out of it. Here's what they believe. Here's what Nietzsche believed about Christianity. What nihilism, the idea that there's no point to anything, believes about Christian faith. Uh, Nietzsche said, very simply, um, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it was the death of a weak and inept and useless God. So nihilism would say that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're the follower of someone who is weak, inept, and pointless. What does the Bible say? What does Christianity say? The famous 20th century um, philosopher, British philosopher, Bertrand Russell, said this, I say quite deliberately 
that the Christian faith, as organized in its churches, has been and still is the principal enemy of moral progress in the world. That to be on a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, you're on the side of an argument which is evil, vindictive, and selfish. So that's what many people in different spheres of thinking philosophically would think. I don't think it's what most people would think on the street. If you walked up to somebody in Belfast at Corn Market on a Saturday afternoon and said, what's a Christian? I wonder what they would say. What do you think their answer would be? I think most people would say, well, a Christian's a good person. They're people that are nice, they're kind, they're considerate, they're thoughtful. You hear it, don't you, when somebody does something nasty and somebody else will say, well, that's not a very Christian thing to do. Or somebody is a lovely person and they're not yet a follower of Jesus and two followers of Jesus are having a conversation about them. Let's say they're having a conversation about me and imagine for a moment, I know it's hard, that I'm a really nice person. And one of them says to the other, do you know, he's lovely, he'd make a great Christian. You ever heard that conversation? Have you ever said it about somebody? Him, he'd make a great Christian. What you're her, she'd make a lovely Christian. What you're saying is that a Christian is somebody who is a good person, somebody who's kind, somebody who's thoughtful. They are Christian virtues, but that isn't what makes you a Christian. It's not what defines you as a follower of Jesus. Let's think about what the Bible says about this for a moment or two. It's only used the word Christian three times in the Bible. I wonder if you know where that is. The first time it's used, and please turn to these with me, is Acts chapter 11. That's in the New Testament. Acts chapter 11, verse 26. There's a church that has begun in a place called Antioch. This is the first time that the word Christian is used And it was actually a kind of slur. It was making fun of people. Verse 26. Well, let's go from verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Up until that point, We were called followers of the way or followers of Jesus or the community of Jesus. That was normally what we were called. The second time that the word Christian is used is at the end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 26. Jump forward to that. The apostle Paul is before Agrippa, a very important official. And he explains to him what it means to believe. I want to read from verse 24 all the way down to verse at the end of the chapter, okay? While Paul was making his defense, Festus exclaimed, you are out of your mind, Paul. Too much learning is driving you insane. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking the sober truth. Indeed, the king knows about these things and to him I speak freely, For I am certain that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this was not done in a corner. 
King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, are you so quickly persuading me to become a Christian? Paul replied, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that not only you, but also all who are listening to me today might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king got up and with him the governor and Bernice and those who had been seated with them. And as they were leaving, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he'd not been appealed, if he had not appealed to the emperor. Verse 28, in the old version of the Bible, the King James Version, has Agrippa saying this, Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. He says, you have nearly caught me. You've nearly got me, Paul. You've nearly convinced me. And then he says to Paul, is that what you want? Are you trying to make me a Christian? Paul's response is terrific. He says, not only you, but everybody that's listening to you, everybody that can hear us conversation, I want them to become followers. I want them to become Christians. The third time it's used is in 1 Peter chapter 4. Now that's a bit hard to find. So if you're not familiar with your Bible, um, look it up in the index. It's on page 223 of the New Testament in my Bible, but that's probably not going to help you very much. If you find the end of the Bible and work backwards, it's probably better. So Revelation, Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John, uh, 2 Peter, 1 Peter. Chapter 4. Peter's talking to them about suffering. And he says this in verse 16. Yet if any of you suffers as a Christian, do not consider it a disgrace, but glorify God because you bear this name. In other words, it's a privilege to be called one of these. So what is it? The word Christian literally means little Christ. It's most often interpreted as understand being, meaning either a follower of Jesus or part of the company that follows Jesus. But it literally means a little Christ. Other people will see Jesus in you. Other people will somehow recognize his traits, his characteristics, his attitudes, his priorities in you. It's not about whether you've been baptized into the church. It's not about whether you attend church. Justin Bieber, who recently recommitted his life to Jesus, took an old phrase that was said many years ago uh, that was, um, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. And he reworked it and said, being original as Justin Bieber is, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to Taco Bell makes you a taco. It's not about coming to church. I have to say, and I don't mean this offensively, I've been a pastor for over 30 years and in every church that I have pastored, there have been people on the membership role that probably weren't Christians. They fooled everybody. They even fooled themselves. But in their dying moments, as I sat with them or listened to them, it was clear they hadn't settled this. 
They were pointing back to what they'd done. They were pointing back to the number of times they'd been to church, to the number of times they'd read the Bible, to how good they'd been, to the fact that they'd never missed meetings, that they'd always been present, always been supportive. But in their hearts, they didn't have this sense that they belonged to Jesus and they were his followers. To be a Christian isn't to be a Protestant. It's not to be an Anglican. It's not to be a Pentecostal. It's not to be a Roman Catholic. It's to be a follower of Jesus. It's not about your goodness or about what you've done. It's not about how many brownie points you've earned. The Bible makes it very clear that good works do not make us acceptable to God. A person can live to a high moral standard. They can give money to the poor. They can go to church. They can serve their neighbors and still not be followers of Jesus Christ. Listen to the words that Paul wrote to a man called Titus. In chapter 3, verses 3 to 6. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. It's not about how good you are. And it's not about how much stuff you've achieved. One of the most achieving human beings in the world was John D. Rockefeller a billionaire several times over. And he said, there is nothing in this world that can compare with being a Christian. Nothing can satisfy but Christ. And that man had it all. I want you to turn with me to one of the most famous portions of the Bible. John chapter 3. This is an offensive passage. It offends those that feel self-righteous. It offends those that feel as if they have all the answers. It's a difficult passage. And I want you to listen to it carefully if you are able to. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi... We know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can someone enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I have said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel? 
and yet you do not understand these things. Here's a religious leader, schooled in attending religious services, never missed one of the leaders of the Jewish community, a member of something called the Sanhedrin, the 70 most influential leaders in all of Israel. And he comes to Jesus not understanding what it means to be his follower, not understanding who Jesus is, not understanding where his power comes from, not understanding spiritual life. And he wants to know more. And Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you have to go through birth a second time. You've been born of your mother, but now you must be born of God. There's something that has to change in you that brings new life into your heart. Christians call it being born again or being born anew or being converted or coming to faith. It doesn't matter what language you use, but there is a vital step required in becoming a Christian. And that is when the life of God enters you and you become a new living being by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that only happens through Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Later on in the same chapter, Jesus explains this to them because he says, God loved the world so much that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Because God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved or rescued. Anyone who believes this will be rescued or saved, he says. And anyone who doesn't believe this is condemned already. Jesus makes it clear. It's not about going to church. It's not about all the stuff that you do. It's not about what you know. It's not about how clever you are. It's about whether or not you believe that he has been sent by his father to the world to rescue us. And if you believe that in your heart, if you respond to that in your heart, something changes within you. It's not something that you can make happen. Paul, writing to a church called Ephesus, said this in Ephesians chapter 2, you are saved by grace through faith. It's as if God has prepared a gift for everyone who will receive it. And that gift is eternal life. That gift is forgiveness. That gift is a fresh start. It's all your sorrow, all your heartbreak, all your pain being carried, not by you on your own, but by God and you. Him coming into your life and being the center of it, giving you a new magnetic north to live by, something that keeps you going in the midst of everything else falling apart. And it's a gift. He's already offering it to you right this minute from this pulpit, across the internet or in this room. He's saying, I have new life for you. I have a fresh start for you. I have a new relationship for you. I have a new purpose, a new destiny and a new meaning do you want it? How you answer that question determines whether or not you are a Christian. All the other questions are secondary questions, but that's a primary question. You see, there are a number of people who have experienced this new life, this conversion in different ways. In Acts chapter 9, a man called Saul who became Paul, was converted dramatically. He was on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus to arrest Christians, and God met him, and he fell off his horse, or so the story goes. He might not even have been riding a horse. And God spoke to him, and he said, why are you persecuting me? Saul lost his sight for three days. A man called Ananias in Damascus, who was a follower of Jesus, was sent to speak to him. Saul was converted suddenly, powerfully, 
It's where we get this phrase, a Damascus Road experience. He had this sudden interaction with God that changed him forever. He became a follower of Jesus in those moments. Well, that's not the only way there is to enter into this Christian life. There was a young man in the Bible called Timothy. And he became a pastor in the city of Ephesus. And Paul was his mentor. And he wrote to him two letters that we have in the Bible, um, helpfully called 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says this, I know that you learnt the scriptures at your mother's knee and at your grandmother's knee. No sudden conversion, apparently, for Timothy. No moment that he can point back to and said, that was the second. That was the very hour. He came into faith gradually, like a coral reef being built. It doesn't actually matter whether you come to faith suddenly or slowly. What matters is that you come to personal faith. That you have made a decision for yourself that Jesus Christ is the saviour of the world. And you have responded to the reality of that. In Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul talks a great deal about this because the Roman believers, the Christians in Rome, are worried about what's going on and what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. I want to read you just four verses from chapter 10, verse 9, through to verse 13. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's the key. Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? And do you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead? If you can say yes to those two things, then you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You believe with your heart. For the Jews, the heart wasn't the seat of emotion. It was the seat of their will. It was the seat of their intellect. It was the seat of their convictions. It was the seat of their values. We have turned that into this. If I feel it, it's true. That's not what Paul means. It's far more powerful than that. What he says is, if your convictions tell you this is true, whether you feel it or not, believe it. Your feelings are dictated by whether you had cheddar cheese or stilton last night. Whether you had an argument with your wife or your girlfriend or your neighbor, whether your money worries are mounting, your feelings are dictated by lots of other things. But when you believe something because you're convinced of it, because the intellectual argument is being made, because you have taken a step, it changes everything. Believe in your heart. And by believing, you are justified. Your wrongdoing is lifted from you. Your separation is removed from you. Your sin is taken away from you. Your shame is removed from you in the act of believing. And to confess with your mouth is to say the same thing as God says about God and about yourself. The word confess means to say the same thing. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you will be justified and saved. That includes accepting that Jesus' death on the cross was a payment for our sin and that his resurrection 
is the proof of his power over death and sin. And that's an offer of life to everybody that will receive it. How do I enter it? How do I get into this life? How do I discover this Christianity? Well, let me for a moment use my body as an illustration, if I may. Imagine that God is standing behind me here, just behind me on this stage. Too many of us spend our lives thinking about Christianity, having a conversation about God. Our backs are toward him. Why not turn and have a conversation with him? Instead of talking about him, talk to him. Those of you that are already Christians, instead of talking about him, talk to him. Ask him. Speak to him. Tell him that you're angry with him. Tell him that you're heartbroken. Tell him that you need his help. Tell him that you're confused. Tell him that you don't understand. He can handle it. He's not going to be taken off guard by our big questions. Christians are not people who talk about God. We are, Christian, we are people who talk to God. We're in a living, breathing relationship with him. And here is one of his promises recorded by a man called John toward the end of his life. If you confess your sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is a universal promise. If you are willing to tell God you need him, then he's willing to help you. No ifs, no buts, no maybes, nobody excluded. If you are willing to tell him you need him, he is willing to help you. The problem with the church often today is we don't believe that enough. It couldn't be that simple, could it? Yes, it could. He couldn't love that much. There must be somebody that he doesn't love. There must be somebody that's beyond the pale, somebody that has done something so bad that they couldn't possibly be included in that promise. Well, this is where I think the Bible is a remarkable document. Paul, who wrote to Timothy, said this to Timothy in one of his letters. I am, talking about himself, not me. I am the worst of sinners. Now, over the years, I've heard preachers say, ah, but, you know, I wasn't born then, or there were other people that were far worse. I'm quite happy with Paul being the worst of sinners. Because if God can save the worst of sinners, then he can save you. He can save me. I'm not as bad as Paul. I didn't do what Paul did. I'm quite happy to acknowledge I'm not as bad as Paul. Paul describes himself as the worst of sinners, and yet he's the person that becomes an avid follower of Jesus, one of the world's greatest followers of Jesus in history. And if God can reach into the worst person and make them one of the best followers, that's quite good news, don't you think? All we have to do is ask him. All we have to do is allow him to touch us, to reach into our lives. See, it Spurgeon was a famous... Baptist preacher. And he was talking to his students. He ran a Bible school. He was talking to his students one particular day. And I take this very seriously. And he said to them, remember, every time you preach the gospel, not only do you give people a chance to respond, 
but you accept responsibility that someone might hear it for the last time. That weighs heavily on me. Every time I stand behind this pulpit or any other pulpit around the world, and I invite people to make a decision based on the truth of what God has said about himself, I'm aware of the fact that maybe the last time you hear it. And you might get angry with me, but I've just explained to you that Jesus loves you. I've just explained to you that he died for your sin. I've explained that God offers you life. Now what will you do about that? When James Thompson was buried here last Wednesday, his family made it very clear to me that they wanted me to be as clear as that at his funeral service, and I was. It's one thing to know what a Christian is. It's another thing to be one. And that's your choice, not mine. To be a follower of Jesus is to become more like him. It's to have your attitudes changed. For those of you that have already made this decision, are you growing? Have you settled this in your heart? Do you know that if you died tonight, you'd be redeemed? His love for you is able to transform you and change you. The famous British novelist George Orwell once said, as with the Christian religion, the worst advertisement for socialism is its adherence. Can I ask those of you that are already Christians a very honest question? What kind of billboard are you? Can this nation and the nation of the Republic of Ireland look at you and say, I know what a Christian looks like. They're not perfect, but I see God in them. Surely that's our prayer, isn't it? All of us want to be like that. We want to be seen to be people that look like Jesus. That journey never ends, brothers and sisters. There's always more to learn. There's always a bit of us that God can be working on. There's always something that we can yield to him. So let me ask you a question. Are you churched? Are you Christianized? Or are you converted? If you're churched, you never miss a meeting, but nothing's changed on the inside. If you're Christianized, you probably never miss a meeting, but you're always striving. There's always something inside you that says, I have to do more. I have to try harder. I'm not fully sure. There's something that I'm not doing right. Somehow I'm not good enough. God couldn't love me. God doesn't want me. I have to prove that he made the right choice. Or are you converted? Do you know deep within your spirit that God loves you? That he's forgiven you, that he's accepted you into his family? Because as much as you might be pursuing God, God pursues you more. One of the greatest leaders of the church in the 20th century was a man called John Stott. And in a book entitled, Why Am I a Christian? He said this, the most significant factor does not lie in my strength. And it is on this that I want to concentrate my first chapter. Why I am a Christian is due ultimately neither to the influence of my parents and teachers, nor to my personal decision for Christ. 
It is instead um, attributable to the hound of heaven. That is, it is due to Jesus Christ himself who pursued me relentlessly even when I was running away from him in order to go relentlessly my own way. And if it were not for his gracious pursuit, then I would today be on the scrap heap of wasted and discarded lives. As much as you might think you could love God, he loves you more. And he is pursuing you. He wants you to become a friend. He wants you to become a follower. And I would say to you, there are no reasons for not making a decision to follow him. I don't want you to be churched. I don't want you to be Christianized. Northern Ireland doesn't need just more do-gooders. What it means is an army of men and women transformed by the grace and the mercy of God. And that could be us, amen. What could God do? with a bunch of people sold out for him. I'm going to pray for you in a moment. But I want to touch on something which I think is really important and isn't often talked about today. It is Christian assurance. To know deep in your soul that God has saved you. It's one of the greatest gifts that God gives to his people. And in my years as a pastor, the older I get, the more of a crisis I see in this. People saying to me, am I really converted? Am I really converted? Does God really love me? Is he really there? You can have an assurance of that, an unbreakable assurance that God loves you. He wants you to have that so that in the midst of the storms, you know that you are his and he is yours. So from the youngest girl sitting up on the balcony on the left, all the way down to the oldest in the congregation, not looking at anybody in particular. (laughs) Are you a Christian? Would you like to be one? Let's pray. I'm not asking you to join Dundonald Elam Church. That's not even on my priority list. God will join to us the people that he wants to be part of our fellowship. My duty as a preacher of the gospel is to ask you a fundamental question at home and here. Are you a follower of Jesus and would you like to become one God is stretching out his hand across the internet to every person listening to this message and in this room to everyone here I'm going to pray a prayer in a moment for those who would like to become Christians and then I'm going to pray a second prayer for those that want to either return to the Lord or be given the gift of assurance in their salvation. No one is watching except me. If you pray either of these prayers online and you're under 18, I want you to drop an email to my colleague, Davy. His email is davy at dundonaldelam.church and he will help you. 
If you're over 18, I'd like you to drop the same email to my colleague Pip. His email is pip at dundonaldelam.church and he will help you. And here in the room, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to have the courage to indicate to me that you've made this choice by quietly, when no one else is looking, raising your hand. So in your heart, pray with me now. Lord, I come to you and thank you for my salvation. But I need assurance of that. I want you to help me to know deep within my spirit that I belong to you. I don't want to battle with fear or doubt or anxiety anymore. Would you please lift the anxiety and fear that I am not good enough? Would you give me assurance in my heart that I belong to you? For those who need to return to the Lord, I have wandered too far. I am sorry and I am coming home to where I belong, to you. Help me. Forgive me of my mistakes. Restore the joy of my salvation and help me to walk in your way. And for those who are committing themselves to Jesus for the very first time, I come to you tonight in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And I accept your grace for me. I am sorry for everything that has separated from me from you. Forgive me of my sin. I accept that Jesus died for me. I accept that he rose again for me. I ask you to give me a fresh start and a new life. I will not keep running. I want to follow you. I don't understand everything, but I want to know you better. Thank you for welcoming me into your family. Thank you for forgiving my sin. Help me to follow you for the rest of my life. From this moment on, now, whilst your heads are bowed, if you've prayed that first prayer, wanting the gift of assurance of salvation, then where you are, could you just raise your hand and take it down again so I can see it and I can pray for you. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Who else? Thank you. There's no need to be embarrassed about this. Is there anyone else? God is moving here. The saints should be rejoicing. My second question, if you've wandered away from God and you're returning to him tonight, you're saying, I'm coming home and you've prayed that prayer, then could you raise your hand, please? So I can see it and I can pray for you. Thank you. Looking across the downstairs now. Don't be embarrassed or afraid. And my third question. You'll need courage if you're going to respond to this. I pray God will give it to you. If tonight you've become a Christian... You've begun a relationship with God. 
Let me know so I can pray for you by putting up your hand and taking it down again, please. In the silence, I'm giving you a chance to think. God says, don't keep running away from me, whoever you are. I want to thank you, Lord, for all that have responded to you tonight, here in this space and on the internet. I believe your word when you say, cast your bread upon the waters and it will return to you after many days. Thank you for those whose desire is to have assurance. Thank you for those who have returned to you tonight. For those that have made a decision without raising their hand to follow you. Give them grace and courage. For those that will listen to this message in the months and the weeks and the years that lie ahead, I pray that what has been said tonight will bring much fruit for your kingdom in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. If you'd like to talk to somebody about anything that you've heard this evening, if you'd like someone to come and pray with you, to talk you through what it means to be a follower of Jesus or you know somebody that needs that help, this church is a community that wants to see people converted. We believe in it with all of our hearts and we will continually proclaim the gospel and give people a chance to respond to him. If you want to bring somebody to hear the gospel shared with them, a Sunday night is the time to bring him. God is at work here and I am delighted and thrilled at what he is doing Please join us in this great, great endeavor to see hundreds and hundreds of people one to Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. We're going to sing a closing song. It's a great